All right, well, let's open up in prayer one more time. Lord God, again, we thank you so much for this day. Lord, because it's a day that you have made, and as the psalm says, we shall rejoice and be glad. And so we thank you for that. And I pray this morning, Lord, that as we proclaim your word and go through the text this morning, that you would speak to each and every heart. And Lord, because of that, they too may rejoice and be glad in what your word has to say to them this morning. Lord, each and every one of us are at a different place in life and different things are going on. And some of us follow you, Lord, and there may be some in here this morning that are just barely clinging on or have walked away or who've even totally rejected you. But Lord God, your word can break through all that. And we pray that through the power of your Holy Spirit, again, that you would speak to each and every heart and that each and every one of us would leave this morning desiring to walk closer to you. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, open up your Bibles this morning to Isaiah chapter 26. And just by, before we get into the text, I'm going to do something a little differently. Usually I go through the entire text and then come back and talk about it. But this morning I'm just going to talk as we go along, point out some application as we go along. So that's what I'm going to do. So I just wanted to warn you, I guess, and show you how I'm going to proceed this morning. It just by way of background of what's going on in the book of Isaiah at this time, again, I always like to do this uh, just so we have some context. This is a continuation of a song or a praise that Isaiah really began in chapter 24. So we're two chapters into this, and I think it's going to go one more chapter. And in this chapter, it's really similar to the last one. So if you were here last week, this is just kind of a further encouragement for you about clinging to the Lord God or trusting God in the midst of all that is going on in our world. Because Isaiah, in this prophecy, is really singing about the future, about what's going to happen in the future for God's people. But in doing that, he's really encouraging the people of God in the meantime. And he's going to do it this time in chapter 26 through a song. As you look at the text, turn with me to chapter 26 and look at verse 1. Let me read this real quick. It says, In that day this song will be sung in the land of Judah. So again, Isaiah is thinking, hey, in the future, in God's country, so to speak, where God's home is, there's going to be a song that we are all going to sing. He's giving hope to his people. If you remember, his people are really in a lot of trouble. There's oppression from armies all around them. They're having a difficult time, and they're trusting and clinging on to different countries to come and help them. And they're finding out that the thing that they're holding on to, the thing that they've been clinging on to, is not going to save them. And Isaiah, over the past few, really through the entire book, has been trying to get them to wake up and say, you know what, it's time to stop clinging to all these other things all around you and cling to the Lord God. And so he's envisioning here what it's going to look like when all of God's people ultimately are clinging to God for all eternity. So this song of praise serves a dual purpose. One, we look at the future, and this is the future for each and every one of us who clings to the Lord in faith, and it's also written to encourage God's people to trust in the Lord now. So not only looking to the future, but now we can trust God. It has some present application. And so please keep that in mind as we're going through it. 
So let's start again in verse 1. Let's just read the first three verses. It says, And in that day this song will be sung in the land of Judah. And so here's the song, and I'm not going to sing it. I'm going to read it. It says this, We have a strong city. He sets up walls and ramparts for security. Open the gates that the righteous nation may enter, the one that remains faithful. The steadfast of mind you will keep in perfect peace because he trusts in you. Notice in their song there's no rhyming. I don't know why. But it would be a hard song to learn, but it's written down for us. So this is the beginning of this song that Isaiah foresees God's people singing. And again, it's a song of praise that is describing our future reality if you trust in the Lord. And let's look at what he's talking about here. In verses 1 through 2, he's talking about an eternal city. There's this strong city that has set up walls and ramparts for security. So if you can think of maybe, maybe a, a medieval city. I love to read about the Crusades in the 12th, 13th, 14th centuries. And I always envision these, you, when you see, you see these big castle walls that surround a sit, the outside city and then the castle on the inside. So just picture that. This is what Isaiah is seeing. The big, the big walls that protect this city and nothing comes in them. It's an eternal city. There's protection, he's saying. We have, we have a strong city. It has walls and ramparts for security. It's to keep the enemy out. And it's a city. If you look at the rest, look at chapter 2. He says, open the gates that the righteous nation may enter the ones that are faithful. So the only people that are coming into this city in the future are the ones who remained faithful, the righteous nation. So that's the picture he's painting, and maybe some of you are envisioning now, and I'm going to take you there, what the book of Revelation says about this future city, because it describes it in a similar way with a lot more detail. So just so you know, this is our future reality. Isaiah is singing about it here, but turn with me to the book of Revelation and go to chapter 21. I'm just going to read through it. I'm not going to discuss all the details. It's, if you think Isaiah is hard to understand, try to read the book of Revelation sometime. In Revelation 21, go to verse 10. As God here, or excuse me, John is describing the new heavens and the new earth, and we've been talking about this over the past few weeks as well. And he sees this city coming down from heaven, the place where all believers will dwell. And he describes a little bit of it. Starting in verse 10, he says, And he carried me away in the Spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. So this is the picture that John is getting, or vision that he's getting. He sees similar to what Isaiah is talking about in Isaiah 26. And he talks about the city in verse 11. He says, Having the glory of God, her brilliance was very, very costly stone." as a stone of crystal clear jasper. It had a great and high wall, again, speaking of the security, with 12 gates, and the gates, and at the gates, 12 angels, and the names were written on them, which were the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel. So just a little bit about that. So you see this big city coming down, high walls for security, even describing angels at each of the gates for protection, and who's inside of it? You know, only those who are righteous. Drop down with me now because it's going to go through a bunch of descriptions of gems and the way that it looks. And just for our 
study this morning. It's not necessary to look at that. Drop down to verse 22, and let's look at the rest of this chapter, all the way to through 27. And he says this. He says, I saw a temple in it, meaning a temple in the city. I saw a temple in it, for the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. And the city has no need of a sun, or of the sun, or of the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God has illuminated it, and its lamp is the Lamb. Again, God's glory is going to be so great, and we talked about this a few weeks ago, how God's glory puts to shame the sun. That's how bright it will be. It's just because God is ever present with his people for all time. And look at what it says as we read verse 24. The nations will walk by, the, by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And in the, daytime there, in the daytime, for there will be no night there. My little son Jonathan will love that there's no nighttime there. He never has to go to sleep, I guess. For the, those of us who like to take naps, we're like, dang it. That's okay. I'm, I could take a nap at any time of the day. So anyways, it says, and its gates will never be closed. Why will they never be closed? Because it's eternal security. There's nothing to fear, as he describes, as he goes on. He says, and they will bring glory and honor and the nations into it, and nothing unclean, and no one who practices abomination and lying shall ever come into it, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. So you see the further development of what Isaiah pictures in Isaiah 26. This is what... The Apostle John talks about in Revelation 26, eternal security. The high walls are a picture of security. The ramparts keeping all those who do not are not of the righteous nation out and only those people whose names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life, according to Revelation, are going to be in there. So the song of praise, going back to our text now, is the eternal city of peace and protection it's inhabited only by those of the righteous nation. So the question becomes, well, who's the righteous nation? Is it literally an ethnic people or is it a certain kind of people? Well, look at verse 2 of Isaiah 26. It says, open the gate, the righteous nation may enter, the one who remains faithful. So even within a nation, it's individual people. So I'm just going to tell you right now, it's not talking about an ethnic people. It's not that there's only one nationality is going to be in heaven. No, as we know through the totality of Scripture that people of every tribe, every nation, and every tongue who remain faithful to the Lord will be entered into the kingdom of God. As a matter of fact, that word righteous is talking about those who are right with God. That's what a righteous person is, those who are right with God. And it's talking about, are you right with God because, well, because I went to church, because I walked forward and prayed with a counselor, that made me right with God? What is it that makes us right with God? Because all of us, at, at some point in our life, we're trying to think, I need to get right with God, right? I need to read more. I need to pray more. I need to maybe help out in ministry and do something here or there. And that's not what being righteous is talking about. A person who is right with God according to Scripture, is one who could admit that I've done nothing right in myself to approve of God, to, to please God, but that I trust in God's righteousness. I trust in what His Son has done for me, and that makes a person righteous. They put their trust in God's promise of delivering and cleansing them. 
Because none of us in ourselves can do enough to make ourselves clean. We can never atone for our own sins against God. And so the righteous person is a person who trusts in the work of Jesus Christ and what he has done to deliver us from our sin. Going back to verse 2. So not only is it the righteous nation may enter, he also adds the one who remains faithful. Now when you first read that, you might think, well, what happens if I'm not faithful to God, what God has called me to do? Because none of us in this room are 100% faithful to God 100% of the time. We fall and sin and stumble accidentally and on purpose sometimes, right? We deliberately walk away from God all the time in our life and the actions that we do. So what does it mean that the one who remains faithful to God? Because if that's what it meant, then each and every one of us, no longer how long we've been involved in church, would fail. It's talking about a person who's committed themselves to God. They're faithful, like, I've made a faithful commitment to God, and I trust in what God has done. And I'm going to, you know, do my part in keeping His covenant. Remember, before we started this series in Isaiah, a little over a year ago, we went through the Ten Commandments, and we talked about that that was a covenant between God and His people. And God says, I'm going to do this for you, and I'm going to be your God, and your part of the covenant of being faithful is to keep my commandments. But when you fall, because he knows you will, then there are provisions made for you to atone for your sins. And obviously in the grand scheme of things, when Jesus came, when we fall, we trust in what Jesus' work and what he has done. So you're remaining faithful to your covenant with all your heart, even though you're going to fail. And so I hope that makes it clear on what he's talking about. Those who I'm, I'm faithful, I'm going to trust in God, I'm going to trust in what God has done, and I'm going to live up to the covenant, and he's going to be my God, and I'm going to be his child. That's our part in it. It doesn't mean, well, I'm going to go to church every Sunday, I'm going to read every day, I'm going to pray every day. Those things we should do on our own just because we love God, but not because to make us righteous or to say, I'm going to do these faithfully, and that makes me right with God. That's not what he's talking about. Right? It's the one that's committed themselves to God out of faith, and the one who keeps the covenant of God. He says, I accept that covenant. Because there are some people who say they believe in God, but they don't even try to walk in the ways of God, right? A lot of people say, yeah, I believe in God, but their lifestyle would say the direct opposite in, in their deliberate actions, meaning deliberately not following God. So the righteous nations are those who are right with God, the one that remains faithful with God. And verse 3 continues on. It says, The steadfast of mine you will keep in perfect peace because he trusts in you. That steadfast of mind is talking about an undeviating cast of our minds. Like, I'm focused on the Lord. I want to serve God the best that I can. It's a fixed disposition of trust. Like, I trust in God. doesn't mean I follow Him faithfully all the time when I don't mess up, but my trust is in Him, not in my own works. That's the steadfast mind. It's they're steadfast in their trust of God. Right? It's not saying, well, I believe in God, but I'm going to do what I want to do, and I trust in what I want to, and I do, or I trust in what I do to the best of my ability. No. We have to understand, which we'll see in a few moments here, is that we can do nothing to please God except believe in Him. 
all of our righteous acts do not please the Lord in regards to salvation. So a steadfast mind is someone who is fixed on God, trusting on God, clinging to God. And the person that does that results in their mind being at perfect peace with God because they trust in God. So let me give you the flip side of that because sometimes that helps us understand a little bit better. Turn with me to the book of James. And we're going to be in James just in the very first chapter and looking at verses 6 through 8. James chapter 1, verses 6 through 8. And so this is talking about somebody who maybe doesn't have their mind focused on something. They're kind of double-minded. And he gives us a good description of this. He says, starting in verse 6 of James chapter 1, he says, But he must ask in faith without doubting. For the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. So unstable, right? For the body, excuse me, read wrong verse. For the man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. So James has kind of given us a picture of, hey, when somebody asks for something from God, and they're to ask believing that they will get it, not doubting. So that's similar to what Isaiah is talking about with the steadfast mind, is that they have a fixed disposition towards believing in God and not, really, not doubting Him. All of us might know people in our life that they have one foot in the church and they have another foot out in the world, meaning the worldly ways, and they seem unstable. They can't get their life together. Sometimes they trust God and then sometimes they trust on their own, their own selves, their own things. Like, hey, I tried God and now I'm going to try something else. Or I, I'm a Christian on Sunday, but Tuesday through Saturday, I do what I want. Or Monday through Saturday, I do what I want. And they're unstable in all their ways. And maybe you can think of people who have even been in this church at one time, and then they left, and they go out and do their own thing, and then they come back, and they're faithful again to God, and then they leave. And their life, you can see the results of their life. It's just unstable, and they're not at peace with God. Their mind is not focused on God and God alone. They're double-minded. Sometimes they're in the world and sometimes they're in the church. And that happens to even the best of us at times. Sometimes we're trusting in God for something and sometimes we're trusting on our own strength, our own ability to do it. And we're unstable in all of our ways. So let's go back to our text now in Isaiah chapter 26. So, what do we do in the meantime as we look towards this future and, and focus on God and cling to God? Isaiah has this conclusion in verse 4. He says, Trust in the Lord forever, for in God the Lord we have an everlasting rock. So, if this is our future, he's saying this is your future, and he's trying to tell them, well, in the meantime, this is what you're supposed to do. Trust in the Lord forever, not just looking in the future, but now, right? Trust in the Lord. Why? For in God the Lord we have an everlasting rock. So he's telling us, hey, in the midst of this, he's going to give us our application. So this song, as we look through verses 4 and, and go through 6, 
The song of praise is describing our present reality. So if this is your future, he's saying, this is what we should do now. Trust in the Lord forever, meaning now and forever. Even though sometimes it's tough, as we've been talking about over the past few weeks, even though the life has its ups and downs, and there's suffering, and the world falls apart around us, and sometimes it's self-inflicted, we do it ourselves, continue to cling to the Lord. Trust in the Lord now and forever. That's Isaiah's message to the people of God. And he says, why do we trust in God? He says, because God is a rock, an everlasting rock. But what does that mean? Well, everlasting rock in the Old Testament is a description of the Lord's character and what he does. He is a shelter and a protection. So it's like a big cleft in the mountain that you would run to for protection and hide from the elements or even from opposing armies. He says, God is your rock, your eternal protector, your eternal refuge. So if that is true, then cling to him and trust him forever. God is not just about this future thing. Even now, he protects us. And he gives a comparison in verses 5 through 6 of those who don't trust in God. He says, For he has brought low those who dwell on high, the unassailable city. He lays it low. He lays it low to the ground. He cast it to the dust. The foot will trample it, the foot of the afflicted, and the steps of the helpless. He gives that comparison. God is this rock that protects you, and those that don't trust in God, he brings down and, and drops them down low and humbles them. That's the comparison he's making so the application for us is since this is our future and since this is who God is, we should trust in the Lord our God forever. And that's a commandment to each and every one of us this morning. And even to ask yourself, how much do you trust in the Lord God? Do you trust Him on Sundays or when your Christian friends are around or your Christian family's around and you don't really have it really inside that you're trusting the Lord? Each and every one of us needs to come to that reality, that fact, because one day we will all stand before God and it will be just you and the Lord. You can't cling to your parents or your children's faith or your friend's faith. It's just you and the Lord. And Isaiah is saying, trust in the Lord now because he's a rock. He's worthy to be trusted. So this song of praise and describing our present reality goes on to describe the path of the righteous, that God makes the righteous path smooth, or our way, meaning our way of life. But what do you mean by that? Well, let's look at the text, starting in verse, look at verse 7. The way of the righteous is smooth, so he's talking about the righteous, those who are right with God. O upright one, make the path of the righteous level. What are we talking about here? Now, this is speaking more of the Lord's character than the actual path, because each and every one of us can attest that our path in life has probably not just perfectly smooth, has it? Maybe some of you are blessed in that way. Our life is riddled with pain and suffering and ups and downs and highs and lows. That happens to each and every person. So it's not really speaking about that. He's speaking again more to the Lord's character than the actual path. Now, the path or the, the ground back then or in the area that he's speaking about was not level. There would be, you know, we'd be walking up the path and then you would walk down. If you've ever been hiking, 
And you think, okay, it's just right there. I know once I get over this and go down, the end's going to come. And then you go down and you're like, oh, no. Or once I get around the bend, I think that's the end. And you find out, no, it's not. It's kind of deceptive. But if you have a straight path, you can see the end. And this is what he's talking about here, is that the, the path of the righteous is straight. It's level so that you can see the end. You can see all around you. It's like you have good sight along the road as opposed to those who are not right with God. They don't know what is going on all around them. To where if you have a stable path and it's level and you can see all around you, you know what's going on. And this is how the Lord makes the righteous path smooth. We could depend on the Lord as we walk along this road of life and He helps us see all that's going on. I'm thinking of yesterday, me and uh, my wife Mindy, we went out hiking in Laguna because... On the app, it said Laguna was going to be high 70s, low 80s, which is a lot better than high 90s, low 100s in the Inland Empire. Well, that's by the beach, not when you're hiking in the canyon, which is what we did. And as, I'm, as we're walking this, we're like totally dying because it's like 90-some degrees. It's 12 in the afternoon, and we were doing that. I'm like, okay, if we just get over this, I think that's the end. And it wasn't because it was, it was like, you know, I told her, oh, my, my chest is hurting. And she immediately thought, oh, my gosh, you're going to have a heart attack. Stop right now. Drink water. Drink water. But I just meant like, you know, when you exercise really hard and your lungs are like, oh, that's what I meant. But for the rest of the way, she was just staring at me like I was going to have a heart attack the whole time. And I freaked her out. She says, don't say your chest is hurting. Say that your lungs are hurting. I go, well, my lungs are in my chest, aren't they? I don't know. But again, the point is, is we didn't see what was coming around the bend. But if the path is straight and it's flat and you can see it, it's a little more easier in life. And this is the idea that is, Isaiah is saying. It's not that life is going to go smoothly, because it doesn't. But you're going to have God there guiding you along with the inclines and declines and the long waits and all the things that are going on in life. That's the promise. And that's why he's saying you can trust God now in the midst of this. Because the Lord makes your paths smooth. So the song of praise describes our present reality. Let's go to the next point in verses 8 through 9. So this song describes, it's our present reality. It's our responsibility to walk this path in obedience. To walk this path in obedience. Look at verse 8. He says, indeed, speaking of the righteous along the path, while following the way of, of your judgment, speaking to God, O Lord. So while following the way of your judgments, O Lord, we have waited for you eagerly. Your name, even your memory, is the desire of our souls. At night, my soul longs for you. Indeed, my spirit within me seeks you diligently. For when the earth experiences your judgments, the inhabitants of the world learn righteousness." So there's a few things I want to point out here in our responsibility to walk this path. It's number one, we walk this path that the Lord has given us in obedience to Him. All His ways. And I mentioned this earlier, that there's people that say they believe in God, but they won't walk in His ways. They're walking in the ways that they want to walk. And here Isaiah is saying, we follow the way of your judgments, O Lord. That's what the righteous person does. They walk in obedience to what God 
calls them or how he calls them to walk. And again, it doesn't mean you walk in perfect obedience because Scripture tells us we will sin. And when we sin, we have an advocate to forgive us. So it's the desire, it's the, you know, we, we're focused on God and we're trying to walk in obedience. We're committed to following him in obedience. So our responsibility, again, is to walk this path, walk in obedience. But not only that, walk it eagerly for the Lord or wait eagerly for the Lord to move in your life. Look at the text again. At the second part of verse 8, he says, We have waited for you eagerly. Your name, even your memory, is desire of our souls. As you're walking along this path of life, we should be looking for the Lord, waiting eagerly for the Lord to move in our life. We don't get off the path because God's not moving and we're going to do it our way. No, we're going to walk in obedience and wait for God to move. That's what Isaiah is describing here. Somebody who's walking along the path and they're waiting for God to move. And sometimes you could walk a long way before God moves in your life. But you're going to be trusting and you're going to wait for God to do that. Not only that, you should walk in fellowship with the Lord as you're along this path. Right? You don't just do this like, I'm just going to be obedient and do what God says. And there's no relationship you see, the Isaiah is describing that there's this longing, there's this desire of his soul to have fellowship with God. Some of us can have a, a faith that is just a said faith, and there's no real relationship with God. We're just going through the motions. We come to church, we sit down, we sing, I got four songs, a sermon, two more songs, and I'm out of here. And there's no life in you. Have you ever met a Christian that, or someone that says they're a Christian and there's no excitement or joy for the Lord in their life. Now, I'm not saying we all have to be, you know, hyper-Pentecostal and shouting and jumping up and down, but doesn't knowing the Lord give you some excitement or some joy? I know we all have different personalities, but Isaiah is saying, do you eagerly desire to spend time with the Lord? Do you eagerly desire to worship the Lord, to walk with the Lord? And if you don't, why don't you? Why do you not desire to pray to God? to worship God, to spend time in His Word, to spend time with His people? That's a question each and every one of us has to ask ourselves. Why do we have no desire to do those things? It could be that you don't really have a relationship with the Lord and you don't really know Him. You're just walking this path, going through the motions. And so we need to walk in fellowship with the Lord. Don't coldly walk alone this path spiritually. I think that's what Isaiah is getting at here. Let's move along. He says, starting in verse 10, he contrasts it here with those who fall away or choose to walk along their own path. Look at verses 10 and 11. He says, Though the wicked is shown favor, he does not learn righteousness. So there's the contrast. The one who follows God along the way will learn righteousness. Even as God shows them favor, they will learn to follow God. But the person that doesn't believe in God and sees the exact same things, Isaiah is saying they do not learn righteousness. There's no effect of God on their life. And that's why, again, why I asked us a little while ago, why do you have no desire to follow God, to come to church, to worship, to read your Bible, to pray? Have you not learned righteousness? Have you not learned that the Lord is good? Do you not understand what He's done for you and all that He has for you? 
There should be some movement in our soul and in our spirit to follow after God. And again, that's why he says, look at verse, just look at verse 9 one more time. I want you to get the sense of, this, of Isaiah saying, At night my soul longs for you. Indeed, my spirit within me seeks you diligently. For when the earth experiences your judgments, the inhabitant of the world learn righteousness. That's the effect that God has on those who truly believe in him. What do you yearn for? What do you desire in life? And again, he contrasts that with those who don't know the Lord. He calls them the wicked here. Verse 10, though the wicked is shown favor, so he's shown the same thing sometimes in the world, he does not learn righteousness. He deals unjustly in the land of the uprightness and does not perceive the majesty of the Lord. That's it right there. You ever wonder why you, know, you could sit in church and you're moved and maybe the person that you brought to church doesn't, isn't moved at all? They don't perceive the majesty of the Lord. Let me ask you this morning, do you perceive the majesty of the Lord, how awesome God is? If you do, that should have some effect on you, right? It should move you. You should learn righteousness and deal justly in the land, not like the unrighteous here. It says who doesn't learn and has no effect on their life. So the song of praise that Isaiah is describing in our present reality is, number one, trust in the Lord forever. Number two, the Lord makes the righteous path smooth. Our responsibility is to walk this path. And then he goes into the rewards in verses 12 through 15. So walking on the Lord's road leads to great reward. And he describes them here. Look at, let's read verses 12 through 15 and then come back and talk about it. So verse 12, he says, Lord, you will establish peace for us since you have also performed for us all our works. O Lord, our God, other masters besides you have ruled us, but through you alone we confess your name. The dead will not live, the departed spirits will not rise, therefore you have punished and destroyed them, and you have wiped out all remembrance of them. You have increased the nation, O Lord, you have increased the nation, you are glorified, you have extended all the borders of the land." So here he's talking about how walking on the Lord's road leads, or the Lord's path leads to reward. In verse 12, he says that it gives peace, that we have peace with God. If you are walking with the Lord, you are now at peace with God. You are not an enemy of God. Before, when you weren't walking with God, Scripture tells us that we were an enemy of God. But now we are at peace with God. And that's what he's talking about here, that the Lord will establish peace for us. It's obvious that we don't have peace in this world, but we have peace with God. And I believe that's what he's talking about here. So not only will your reward be peace with God as you walk along the path, but verse 13 tells us that we will praise his name. That's meaning that we will confess the name of the Lord because we've seen his faithfulness to us on the road of life. He says, you know, we've had other masters we have other things that controlled us, other things that we've given our life over to, but we've, through experience of the Lord, we confess His name. Each and every one of us goes through that in life. There are certain times where something controls us other than the Lord.
But we come back to God going, you know what? God is the better master than all these things. Again, the righteous learn this and turn to the Lord, where the unrighteous doesn't. And they still allow other things to control their lives. Other people, hobbies, jobs, whatever it may be, relationships. Those things control them so much so that they miss out on all that the Lord has for them. They're finding their fulfillment or trying to find all their fulfillment and all these other things. And those are the things that have mastery over them in their life and prevent them from seeing God and who God truly is. And therefore, they cannot praise the Lord God because of it. And he contrasts this in verse 14 when he says, the dead, meaning those who are, do not know the Lord, will not live. The departed spirits will not rise Therefore, you have punished and destroyed them. You have wiped out all remembrance of them. Those who choose to walk along their own path, this is the destination for them. He's describing it here. Moving on to verse 15 now. Walking on the Lord's road leads to great reward because we bless the Lord because of it. We bless His name. He says, you have increased the nation, O Lord. You have increased the nation. You are glorified you have extended the borders of the land. The reward of walking with the Lord is that, you know what? You praise God. You confess Him and you glorify Him with your life. That is a reward that we have. Not all people do that. Some people will never glorify the Lord their entire life. That's a great reward that you get to praise the creator of the universe and he accepts that praise. I mean, we need to think about that when we're worshiping. We're not just singing to the worship team or to the people around us. We're actually standing before the Lord God and glorifying him. That should move you as well. Emotionally, I think that should move you. You're praising the creator of the universe. I don't know what you picture, and I've said this before. I always picture, like, I always think of the Wizard of Oz. Like God is the great, he's greater than the great and powerful Oz, obviously. But that's what I picture, a big throne room that I can't see him, but I'm standing before him with all of you and we're praising just this big throne and God's there somehow, some way. That's the picture that we get. Like we're standing before the Lord God, blessing the Lord our God. Verses 16 through 19, as we move along, talk about, that we learn humility. You might not think of that as a reward, but it is a reward. Staying humble, not being prideful, is a reward that God gives us. Look at verse 16 through 19. He says, O Lord, they sought you in distress. They could only whisper a prayer. Your chastening was upon them. As the pregnant woman approaches the time to give birth, she, she rises and cries out in her labor pains. Thus we were before you, O Lord. We were pregnant, and we were rife in labor. We give birth, as it seems, only to win, and we could not accomplish deliverance for the, for the earth, nor were inhabitants of the world born. What he's describing here is their inability to save themselves and to deliver themselves. He says, we give birth to win. We can't provide deliverance for ourselves. Walking with the Lord helps you realize how unworthy you are and how humble you should be that God would even come to you and call you to be his child. It should remind us of our inability to save ourselves and how thankful we should be 
for what God has given each and every one of us. So walking on the, Lord, the Lord's road leads to great reward, not only in staying humble, but giving us a resurrected life. Look at verse 19. He says, your dead, meaning God's dead, those who are of his, will live. Their corpses will rise. You who lie in the dust, awake and shout for joy. For your dew is as the dew of the dawn, and the earth will give birth to the departed spirits. It's talking about resurrection there. He is saying walking with the Lord results in a resurrected life in the end. Once you die, it is not forever. Isn't this what the Apostle Paul told us in 1 Thessalonians? Turn there with me. Chapter 4, look at verse 13. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13. In talking about dying, he says this, But we do not want you to be uninformed brethren. So he's instructing the church about something. About those who are asleep. And so those, he said, I don't want you to be uninformed about the dead. People that have died. So that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. So he's talking about believers who have died. He says, for if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first, then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Just like Isaiah here in chapter 26 is comforting those who hear this song, Paul is saying the same thing. He's saying, you know what? We're going to be resurrected again. If we happen to be alive at the Lord's second coming, then those who have died first will rise from the dead and then we will join them and meet the Lord in the air, and forever we will be together with the Lord and with our loved ones who have died before us. That's the great reward that we have. That's why we don't mourn over family members or friends that we know and that have died in Christ, because we know it, you know what? We don't see them right now, but we're going to see them again. We're promised that in Scripture. That's why he says, comfort one another with these words. That's our comfort that one day you will see loved ones who have died in Christ. And that's the thing, you must die in Christ, because if you don't die in Christ, you will not rise to eternal life with the Lord, but you will rise to eternal life apart from God. And we've talked about that in the past. And this brings me to my last point. Walking on the Lord's road leads to great reward, meaning we're going to be saved from the wrath of God. Look at the end of Isaiah chapter 26 as we close with these last two verses. Look at verses 20 and 21. He says this. He says, come, my people. He says, come, my people, enter into your rooms and close your doors behind you. Hide for a little while until indignation runs its course. For behold, the Lord is about to come from his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity, and the earth will reveal her bloodshed and will no longer cover her slain. So he's talking about final judgment. God's people will be saved 
in a sense. He says, go, you know, go into your room and close the doors because you're going to be protected from the judgment that's coming on this world. That's a reward of following God. We who are saved will be saved from the wrath of God as opposed to those who do not trust in the Lord, who do not walk in the way of the Lord. They will suffer the, the coming judgment that God has planned for this earth. So this is the song that Isaiah sings. And again, remember, it's twofold. One, he's singing a song about our future, and he's singing a song about now, like hold on to the Lord, cling to the Lord now because of the future and because of who God is. And so let me wrap it up with these few questions. Number one, will you sing this song? Obviously, we're not going to literally sing it, but can you sing that song about God is your God and you're going to trust Him and cling to Him because of, and one day you're going to experience all these rewards? Each and every one of us has to make that decision. Will you sing this song? And number two, will you walk this road or the path that God has laid out? Or are you going to choose your own path? You're going to choose your own song. You're going to do what you want to do. And guess what? God gives us the freedom to do that. But guess what? You also will suffer the wrath of God for choosing to do life your way and not God's way. The great thing about God is that he offers his mercy today. Each and every one of us in this room gets to hear this message. And the question is, will you sing your song or will you sing God's song? Will you walk your road or will you walk his road? I pray this morning that you will choose to sing God's song and walk his road. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you so much again for your word. How it is so powerful and so relevant. I thank you for faithfully preserving your word so that we might hear the encouragement that was given to ancient Israel. It is an encouragement offered to each and every one of us this morning. For those of us who believe, and who are singing your song and walking your path, I pray that we would continue to cling on to you and hold on to you because one day, and even now, we experience great reward. I also pray this morning, Lord God, for those who maybe are not singing this song, who are not walking the path that you've called them to walk, that today, that they would humble their hearts, that they would open their eyes and ears, and they would hear what you say to them, that they would no longer serve themselves or other masters, but they would say, Lord, you are the best master, that they would understand what that means, and you would help them this morning to walk your path and to sing your song. And we pray this, Lord God, in your name. Amen.